This is the Breaking Down Incident Response Podcast. We are your hosts, Brian Betcher. And I am Michael Goff. Welcome to another fabulous episode of Breaking Down Incident Response. Today, we have a guest. He's uh, on the offensive side this time of security. He wrote some cool and useful tools dealing with our topic of the day. Uh, let me just go over a summary here. Uh, we're going to talk about our sponsors of the show. This podcast is brought to you by Humio, a high-performance log management and analysis tool delivering real-time performance for system monitoring and investigation. By allowing users to ingest huge amounts of data on a single node for ad hoc queries and search without doing any indexing, Humio enables its users to monitor a system for errors, user volumes, transactions, registrations, or search on multiple parameters. Humio is available in both on-premise and cloud versions. Start a free trial of Humio today at humio.com. That is H-U-M-I-O.com. This podcast is also brought to you by LogMD, the log and malicious discovery tool for Windows-based systems for IT, InfoSec, IR, and forensics professionals. It helps you assess your audit log settings against several industry standards, including the Windows Logging Cheat Sheet, so you can improve your logging to collect all the right things. LogMD can also be used to hunt for targeted, malicious, and interesting artifacts such as large registry keys, autoruns, WMI persistence, malicious PowerShell execution, and targeted log events that can then be collected by your log management solution. LogMD provides more details and easy-to-read reports than your EDR solutions can provide. We offer a free, professional, and consulting licenses. Discover it. Discover LogMD today at log-md.com. Then we're going to go into newsworthy item related to Sysmon. So we'll talk about the new stuff coming down the pipe on the Sysmon front. I'm not much of a news junkie, so I need to get more into, hey, what's the latest and greatest hacks going on or who's gotten uh, breached and things like that? Or what are some of the new interesting tools that come out? So we're going to do a better job of our newsworthy items. Then we're going to turn to our site-worthy items relating to the topic of the day. We'll go over some websites that you can go to for more information. And then we're going to talk about some tools that are going to help you study more and get more in-depth into your knowledge of the topic. And then we're going to run into our topic today, which is um, WMI. So we're going to talk about WMI ponage and what you can do to test WMI, learn about WMI, and detect WMI uh, infiltration into your environment. You know, uh, the news The news stuff is interesting because we had a conversation yesterday and uh, my, my, comments, my comments are, how does this help incident responders, right? So the challenge is getting a news article that definitely has a lesson to be learned to help defenders defend, incident responders respond, or forensics people, you know, hunt and whatnot and, and do their forensic, forensic stuff. So that's a little difficult because the stories generally don't go that route, right? They're usually, hey, so-and-so found this new exploit on using OneNote and uploaded it to VirusTotal. And, you know, we saw one of those stories yesterday. And so, uh, well, I guess that is a news story, right? Don't upload your stuff to VirusTotal because then everybody <laughs> has it. But that's uh, yeah. that's the challenge we have with the news stories, I think, uh, is is finding something or coming across something that does help the defenders. And that's what we're trying to do with this podcast is help defenders defend and incident responders respond and and forensics guys forensic 
<laughs> they, they need a better verb. <laughs> Forensicate. Now, on that note, though, if you're trying to find viruses or whatever on a certain system that you think might be infected, don't just upload everything to virus total because there might be some proprietary data on there and now you just shared it with the world. And you could get in big trouble for doing so. Yeah. Hashes. Upload the hashes. Then you at least know it's been uploaded by somebody else. If it hasn't, then that might be a warning to you. Hey, we have a news story. We didn't even know it. All right. So I'm going to introduce our guest. His name is Chris Trunser. He's the co-founder and red team lead at 40 North Security. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, guys. Appreciate uh, you having me on. Appreciate it. All right. He's a specialist in our topic today, at least from our perspective on the offensive <laughs> side. So um, appreciate your unique perspective on the topic. This is a suitable for work podcast, so please don't be too offensive. <laughs> yeah, no, no worries. But, Not at all. Oh, yeah. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this show do reflect our employers, actually. You know, <laughs> you can't just say that they don't and then just spew any uh, any any kind of thing you want and not come back around to you. Right. So we try sure. to keep it professional and all that and and not. uh you know, go into all kinds of uh, other topics that are not related to security. So let's, uh, speaking of other topics, uh, let's go on to our newsworthy section. Newsworthy. All right. Apparently, Sysmon 8 was just released. Michael, you want to go over that? Uh, yeah, I, I picked up on this. Uh, I don't have a lot to say about it because I haven't loaded it or done anything with it yet. But apparently, there's some rule tagging. So one of the challenges of making rules is you have to kind of specify them. So uh, having a tag probably is a good thing in helping people maintain the rules. Uh, we'll probably have a podcast on Sysmon, some gotchas and whatnot. Um, I, I do have concerns of, of people overly being overly reliant on Sysmon. It's a great tool to use in the course of investigating incidents or putting it on systems that you want to expand logging on. But I would definitely uh, put, a, put a warning here that Sysmon settings can be changed directly in the registry. You won't know it. Uh, your configuration can be borked, as we as we learned with this topic on the on the podcast we're talking about today. You're able to kill Sysmon remotely, and so if you were heavily reliant on that, um, I guess here's a tip for the pen testers: you find Sysmon, just go ahead and, and kill it. That uh, that's the challenge, right? You would lose all of your logging. So I am definitely an advocate for layering the the logs. Um, but I expect Sysmon will have uh, a couple bug releases. There was also another mention that the new the, their auto runs, Sys Internals auto runs was updated with some fixes to WMI. You said bug releases. So yeah, with every release, there's probably a lot of bugs, bugs. but you meant bug fixes, right? <laughs> uh, it's important not to rely on just one tool to, to do all of your detection. So if you uh, if you don't configure Windows logging properly and you rely heavily, heavily on Sysmon, uh, you might find yourself in a lurch if you get a, a a hacker on box who's really good and knows what they're doing and uh, detects Sysmon right away, looks at, at what they can do on the system without detection, and then goes from there. Yep. Let's move on to our next topic. All right. Site warning. So yeah, we have some pretty interesting sites that you can go to related to our topic, which is WMI. Let's go over the first one. Yeah. Surprisingly, uh, FireEye had a good uh, blog article on WMI versus WMI monitoring for malicious activity. So uh, this is an interesting concept, and that's why uh, it's my pick to put out there. 
and you can actually create a event consumer that will monitor additions to event consumers within WMI. And, and so this is an article about that uh, problem and solution kind of thing. And, and so I thought it was interesting to at least uh, bring this as an option for people to look at, especially if you're in the heat of an attack that maybe the actors are moving around, you might be able to deploy this as a way to be alerted if it's a heavily used WMI attack. Um, and so that was uh, the article that, that I picked as our solution, as a potential solution, how to deal with some WMI or an option. Let's call it an option. So it tells you how to create an event consumer that consumes events upon the creation of an event consumer? That's what it talks about. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, that, that was an interesting blog post that um, that they came out with a little while ago because uh, that was actually one of the recommendations that uh, we, uh, myself and another individual named Evan Pena gave kind of when we released Women Implant about uh, kind of one way to try to detect like what is going on. Like, can you actually, if you have any sort of telemetry or anything that allows you to see its interactions? And that was one of the recommendations we gave where it may not be enterprise, enterprise deployable, but it's kind of like a good starting point, like a proof of concept, right? And you can kind of build capabilities off that and deploy ad hoc in your environment at, as needed, essentially. All right. Yeah, I, I would be uh, even better impressed if uh, Microsoft would uh, log these things into uh, some event log somewhere. Their uh, Sysmom, one of the things you can get with the event IDs 20 and 21, for example, is when an event consumer is added, Sysmom will capture that. That is one of the added benefits I would recommend people use this Sysmom for. It'd be great for Windows to do a better job here for sure. Okay, so next is abusing WMI providers for persistence. Yeah, this was another uh, potential guest we're going to have on with Chris here. Uh, Phil Zuckerman uh, wrote uh, a tool we're going to talk about next in the next segment. And he did a talk at B-Sides Tel Aviv that I think is uh, pretty interesting, abusing WMI providers for persistence. So his uh, slide share has been, has been uh, uploaded and people can read it. So again, a good resource to understand the kinds of things that can be done with WMI, which we're going to talk about as part of this podcast. All right. And the show notes are published on log-md.com. If you're wondering, just go to that and get all the links. Or bdirpodcast.com. That's B as in boy, D as in David, irpodcast.com. Now, Chris, you had a few site-worthy items. You want to go over them? Sure. Yeah. Um, to not dive super heavily in here, but uh, like a couple of the posts that I have here are from uh, kind of Matt Graber and uh, his blog, Exploit Monday. Um, those are actually a great site. You can kind of think of them as, like, he was originally almost very offensive in how he, the tools that he wrote about. Uh, but, like, it's really interesting because he has a lot of different ideas for detection capabilities for just different offensive techniques that are available that attackers are commonly using today. Uh, so I, I would really highly recommend checking out Matt Graber's blog at exploitmonday.com. It talks a lot about device guard. Uh, one of the other uh, site links that I have on here and available is a list to kind of device guard bypass mitigation rules. And this was actually kind of like the, the reason that Wimmy Implant was created, which we can kind of go into more a little bit later, but was for attacking device guard protected systems. Because uh, what? On device guard protected system, you're going to want to know kind of a service that's always running and basically installed by default. And what other great services there uh, than WMI uh, in order, in, instead of WMI, excuse me. But um, device guard kind of allows you to try to lock down systems. And his rule set right here are, is basically kind of like a public curated 
set of rules that you can try to use to lock down your system with device guard. So I think that's a great site to go to and kind of check out in case anyone's actually deploying it. I have another blog post that's up here for uh, basically out of the block out of the box when we implant detection opportunities. Uh, we'll get into a little bit later, I'm sure, but when we implant does operate over WMI. However, it does so relatively statically. There's always specific WMI classes or properties that it uses. Uh, it always encodes data the same way. It creates different uh, environmental variables, always the same length, using kind of like a same uh, random letters or numbers uh, in order to basically be the name of the value. So it has a couple different static rules in the way that it works. And uh, this blog post kind of put out here to try to help defenders or anyone else that may suspect that women implant is being used inside their environment or just to give uh, them the ability to help build out better detection capabilities by calling out some of the static things that it does. So I uh, wanted to make that available and just hope that uh, it can kind of help in any way that it can. All right. Question. So if an attacker takes Wimmy implant and deconstructs it and changes things about it, then you wouldn't be able to detect Wimmy implant itself. You're, you're just saying that WMI, you're, you're just saying that the tool has certain static functionality that you can detect, not WMI in general, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's not necessarily WMI in general, but just the way that this tool kind of interacts with WMI, uh, maybe the like the relationship between parent-child processes that are created. Uh, again, environmental variables is a big thing, what it uses to try to help stay off of the command line uh, so that that specific commands that are run aren't always logged, but that always starts with the creation of environmental variable. So that this is more of kind of like the out-of-the-box WIMI implant stuff. It's not, I can't speak to say that this will detect every single WMI method of abuse because obviously there's a large number. I mean, you can create custom WMI classes that have their own methods um, that store data via their own properties and a lot of stuff that that wouldn't apply to. But I have started to hear that uh, this tool has been used by actual actors, whether on it's on a small scale, I'm sure. But with that, I felt I also had at least somewhat of responsibility to say, hey, here's a couple different ways that like, for people that are just using this straight from that what you download off of GitHub, here's how you can try to get more insight and to, and to see them actually using to protect yourself. Right. Cool. We have to uh, be sure to keep Matt happy anytime we can, right? Mr. Graber, we got, we got others. You know, stickers, there's T-shirts, got to keep Matt happy. So be sure to read his yeah. blog post. <laughs> yeah, we, we run into him quite often, and uh, he always gives us more work to do. on the... <laughs> Every time he talks, I have more work to do. Pretty time. much. But that's, yeah, he... you know, as a defender, that's kind of the, the whack-a-mole concept of our jobs, right? The researchers and pen testers, red teamers will find something, do something, write something, and that's why Chris is on the show. And uh, we have to then figure out how to detect this stuff and, and make uh, us our lives easier. Yeah. The, the great thing about Matt and like the work that he does, along with a lot of just other different researchers out there, is there's obviously a lot of different or a lot of engineering time spent into developing different capabilities. But there's almost, I would say, equal um, amount of time spent really trying to find, OK, how can we actually come up with like robust high fidelity detections for like what we're doing? Like. You'll see a lot of his talks, uh, especially like blog posts or like Will or any a bunch of other guys, uh, really give, I, at least I think, like good detection opportunities that anyone can use to try to like see, okay, yeah, this technique's being used in the wild right here against us. I can 
find this event log or, or whatever it is, whatever means it is to uh, actually try to detect uh, the work that they've done. So I really like that. And it's funny, there's a, a blog, a Twitter thread almost the other day that I saw about how, I know you guys said that anytime like a new kind of tool or technique comes out, that you're back to the drawing board and that uh, blue team is hard. And I, you know, it's funny because everyone used to say that like red team has it easy because they only need to, or like red teamers could say, like we only need to find like a single hole and then we're in. But like, especially with the kind of like the state of industry slowly moving forward, uh, I'd also say it's kind of almost equally as hard because uh, we do only from a red team perspective, only have to really get like one, find one thing to get in, right? But then from a defender side, and you guys could definitely speak to this more so than I could, uh, really have the capability of like, if we mess up one time, create one bad login or maybe trip um, some application whitelisting rule or anything that it may be, uh, it, it's easy to catch us as well. So it, it, I think it's funny how the kind of the cat mouse game is like slowly changing and evolved into more like a mouse versus mouse, if you will, at times. Yeah, I saw something come across where only 14% of organizations are uh, worthy in security, uh, let's say. I don't remember exactly how the article quoted it. And 14%, I'm like, you know, it's that high, really? The the challenge here is just getting people to do some basics in detection and, and response. And in detection, I think every organization really needs to take logging so seriously. It's like number one priority. Oh, yeah. Just to A, enable it because... Uh, Login B is a, a product you run on the box that you're investigating. You can schedule it and have it run every day, every hour, and feed up to your SIM or whatnot. Um, which, again, how many organizations really have a SIM doing any kind of this detection and or gathering of logs? And when I give presentations, it's about 10%. And so uh, when you guys do your talks, we react, and, and Login D has gotten features specifically because Matt Graber's talks. <laughs> <laughs> but organizations need to at least start doing some really basic things. And one of the things that I think will come out uh, of the way we approached uh, the WMI implant, WMILM by Philip Zuckerman, is we tried the tool. We said, all right, what native logging, what's free, what's stuff that people already have, right? We're not talking about EDR. We're not talking about sure. fancy stuff, right? What What basic things can we do? And I think that's where organizations and the message we hope to share with organizations is get this stuff turned on. Because we're going to talk about today in a little bit. Um, if you do turn this stuff on, here's what you can catch. And uh, that will really help because then people like Chris and, and Matt and gang will get caught when they do this stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the point. All right. What's next? Uh, some tools. Okay. Phil Zuckerman had a tool called Invoke WMILM. Yeah, so uh, we want to fill in the podcast. He's a bit busy at the moment. He just did a talk that we, we shared with you in the site-worthy segment about uh, WMI and persistence. And so this is one of the tools that we recommend if you're going to do some testing and, and detection on WMI is not to outdo uh, um, Chris here, but uh, we did like the simplicity of this tool. Uh, Philip was really helpful in answering some questions I had in regards to getting this working in a lab, another thing we'll talk about, which was a bit of a challenge. Um, but also it taught us something about the how to keep this from happening. So um, yeah, that was a good thing. So definitely take a look at WMILM. And I, I supposed I never refer to it as WIMI, but is that what you red teamers call WMI as WIMI? <laughs> I think that may be just a, a me sort of thing. So I, I, I think it, uh, for when we're talking about the service itself, it's generally always WMI. Actually, I think I can hear you as you're doing your testing with a client. 
the defenders <laughs> on the other side are saying, why me, why me, why me? Yeah, yeah, there you go, there Boom. you go. That's exactly it. <laughs> he also wrote something called WMI Ops, right? No, yeah, that's Chris. So I got to ask a question. I put this and highlighted this. Is is WMI Implant, WMI Implant a replacement for WMI Ops? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's kind of how it started. You know, the, the whole reason I actually really got started into WMI is uh, going back to Matt Graber, um, uh, Willie, and uh, Claudio at FireEye. I think about, oh, so they were working at Fire at the time. I think it's about like a Black Hat and DEF CON in like 2015 or 2016. Um, like, I mean, attackers have been using WMI for quite some time, uh, but this is, they gave a Black Hat talk and a DEF CON talk on really diving into WMI, the offensive capabilities that it has as a service that's installed and running by default on Windows, I think since server 2000. And um, they talk about different ways that they've seen like threat actors use it. And I remember sitting there being like, that is awesome. Like, I really need to spend more time kind of playing with this because it's something like I randomly interact with from an offensive per perspective. Um, and that was really kind of like my moment is like, okay, I really want to dive more into this. And uh, kind of the first evolution of me diving into that and playing that was coming out with Wimmy Ops. And that was where I was like, hey, let's figure out some basic things that I can kind of do. Like, oh, we can start services. We can um, or start services. We can create services. We can start processes. We can kill processes. Like a, just a bunch of different actions that, from my perspective as an attacker, that I wanted to be able to do. And uh, that was kind of the first, first step of that. And uh, once I started to have a, a different kind of purpose and reason for looking into that, uh, I kind of dove into Wimmy Implant then um, for, for different reasons. But yeah, so Wimmy Implant is kind of like the 2.0 version, if you will, of Wimmy Ops. Good. All right. That was, that was, I was wondering that because as I was playing with it, because we also used that tool, became pretty apparent Wimmy Implant had, you know, everything that WMI Ops had. I just wanted to see if there was a noise difference uh, of what was made. And probably some clarification, uh, you've mentioned Will a couple times and Willie. Uh, I do believe you're talking about Will Schroeder, Harmjoy. So yeah, for the yeah, listeners, they'll exactly. know who we're talking about when we mention oh, Will Schroeder. Yeah, yeah him, um, uh, yeah, just a bunch of different guys that have all dove into a lot of the different uh, tools that, that uh, have been created out there. Yeah, I want to give a shout out to Devin Kerr also, who's moved over to uh, another company. He's left Mandiant. And uh, I, I see Devin a lot at conferences as well. I recently, in the course of, of this uh, topic, reached out to him, and he, he's always been really good at sharing information. I'll fortunately see him at the uh, Sands Threat Hunting uh, Conference in New Orleans, so I'll get to catch up with him. But, you know, he's another one where, you know, he worked on engagements at Mandiant, and they would do these great presentations and talk about WMI. And I would go back with the tool set I had. I was in gaming prior, and, and we had a tool called Big Fix. And I was like, what can I detect with Big Fix? And uh, mm -hmm. one of the keys that people should monitor for and, and audit, uh, we'll talk about when we get to that section. But uh, Devin uh, definitely, as a as a in the field IR person, deserves a, a shout out and is doing some great work where he's at now. Yeah, um, I, I should clarify because Will Schroeder definitely has written a, a ton of different stuff as well. Uh, for the Black Hat talk and and the DefCon talk, I was actually uh, speaking about Willie Ballantine. Uh, he, oh. He's a layer reverser. So sorry, yeah, that, that was a little. Oh, see, that's why we needed the clarification. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was fine. I was like, like, oh, wait, I should actually clarify real that uh, real quick. Um, he, along with a, a Claudio uh, and Matt Graber, were kind of the three that like really dove and created like the Black Hat um, research paper and got, and got that talk out there. Yeah, it was in 2015. That is also in the show notes, and the link to the uh, video for that has uh, been posted as well in the show notes. Oh, great. 
Perfect. All right. Well, let's talk about WMI. Okay. What is it? Stands for Windows Management Instrumentation. Now, I'm not exactly sure about the history of why Windows decided to build this uh, component. Maybe it was in response to sort of uh, generalizing the uh, uh, management of computers across the spectrum, Linux, Mac, whatever uh, IBM computers that you had, uh, administrators uh, in the future, and this was, I'm, I'm talking in the future, in the past, in the future, they could use a standard to manage systems. Now, I don't know where that is or where it came about. I, I tried to visit some sites that sort of talked about it and the, you've got some updates in 2012, but that's, as, that's probably as far as it gotten. And I don't know where the standards are now, but WMI was placed into Windows a decade ago or more. And it is, uh, it, it is still in there. It's fully functional and it was built to uh, as an easier way to manage and uh, be aware of what the systems were up to. Yeah, I saw this heavily used early when I was at HP and, and uh, prior to that as a vendor as, you know, where you saw network cards and storage drivers and all the things that servers did, uh, those things were added and, and used WMI to keep track of that stuff is where I first saw this all being utilized. And never once did I ever consider that as something, uh, I, I kind of kind of looked at it as, oh, this is a new SNMP for for Windows, right? Because same kind of thing you do for network <laughs> yeah. devices, you now can do for uh, uh, Windows servers. And then these softwares, the HPs and the compacts of the world, would have these interfaces that would allow you to suck up all this WMI information and, and get the process, you know, utilization of the servers and the heat and all kinds of interesting, you know, data. Uh, and that's that was my first exposure to WMI. I never really thought much of it. And now here we are with the podcast talking about how it can be used to screw your company and and the red team for the win kind of thing. And so uh, yeah, it's it's amazing how some of these ideas that were normally good or used or thought of as a completely different thing to solve a different problem are now um, now a different problem for those yeah, of us. Yeah, it, it's funny because I mean, there's kind of a thought that like any sufficiently created like and it isn't original but like any sufficiently created like administrative tool can clearly be repurposed by an attacker for for, for whatever reasons that they want to use it for and like i mean it's actually a great analogy that i didn't even think about kind of like wmi was the original like snmp replacement for the windows world because i mean that it kind of, i mean that's exactly almost like wmi is like we're able to just be able to gather so much data about a system for either administrative or offensive purposes like it, it's just incredible the amount of data that you can gather and uh leverage however you see fit yeah bummer you see fit <laughs> well, yeah. that covers yeah. what is wmi so chris tell us why pen testers and red teamers like wmi i mean that's a great question i mean probably the biggest thing is that it generally is something that's installed and running by default on virtually every single windows system that that's available in any environment we're going to be operating uh, so that makes it super easy. I mean, really, the only time that I've seen where we've run into issues with WMI is when it's actually been blocked at the firewall, which that may uh, prevent certain uh, administrative capabilities to like be able to remotely monitor unless maybe it's being blocked except from like a trusted administrative VLAN. Uh, however, um, it's generally almost always there. And I mean, we like it because kind of like I mentioned, there is just so much data that you can get from WMI on a system. So when we kind of talked about what, like, what's the, 
almost the hello world of using WMI is, is spawning a process, right? So you can easily create a process on a remote system that can be just spawning Notepad. That can be spawning RegSVR32, MS Build. It could be a variety of different things, uh, it, really any process that you want to run. We, we also have the ability to pull back uh, significantly extra data. So who are the process owners? Like what account is running each process on a system? Maybe I'm trying to hunt for a specific user account environment from an administrative perspective and look to see, can I key log them? Uh, maybe I'm trying to capture credentials in memory. Uh, so I can write a quick script that connects the systems out there, pulls back process owners and, and alerts me when it finds an account that I'm looking for. Maybe I want to see what different network drives a computer is connected to or, or has mapped at that time. So I can quickly scan and interact with the remote system to see what I can do. Uh, another recently, uh, something that I was looking up with uh, Harley LeBeau was uh, it could be kind of interesting to pull back what sort of AV exclusions folders are there on a remote system. So maybe for some reason, and, and it, it, I cringe to say it, but I have to, I have to drop a file on disk uh, on a system that I'm trying to target from an offensive perspective. Uh, but what if one thing that'd be great to know is if that system I'm targeting doesn't actually like scan certain folders. So I can kind of pull that data remotely via a SIM session and uh, see what exclusions are there. Is there a folder? Is it maybe a file name? Is it a file extension? And then that kind of gives me extra information that I can use from an attacker's perspective. And again, it's really all like, it all comes back to like, these are great uses for administrative purposes to be able to gather that data as an admin, but the unfortunate byproduct of having a great administrative capability is it enables uh, attackers essentially. So it is a recon tool of choice in a lot of ways because of its built into everywhere scenario. Yeah. Now, clarification. That's a way of looking at it. You yep. said you said uh, firewall. So were you meaning blocked at the firewall as in a enterprise firewall, or are we talking about the host firewall? Uh, I've seen both. It's generally, you know, unfortunately. People don't <laughs> use Windows Firewall a lot, which it would help block a lot of different things if you just use that capability. Um, but generally, in almost the, in every environment I've been in, it's like one out of 10 that's actually blocking uh, it from maybe like workstation to workstation or workstation to server. I, I don't know if maybe there's a trusted VLAN where it's all allowed from uh, or it's just not used at all. So I, I can't speak to that specifically. But um, there has been times where just yet yeah, we just can't interact with WMI and remote system. Yeah, so that that's important that distinction because if we do, if you do have data center or enterprise firewalls and you have WMI disabled there, that means Chris can't jump across the firewall boundary. But if locally, uh, yeah, yeah, locally, right. So now if you fish somebody and you get in there inside the network, right, inside the data centers, once you're in, then you can WMI between all the hosts. So. Blocking at the data center firewall means if I get to the local scenario, this is a similar conversation I was having with Marcus Carey one time where uh, he, he uh, with his threat care stuff, can do a port scan across the environment. And I tell people generally don't collect firewall failed attempts, but that's how you would detect a attack of a scan from a uh, host to host within the same segment is you can see the all the port scanning going on by failed firewall attempts. So there's a big difference between chopping it or lopping it off at the firewall level Absolutely. thinking I've got it, I've got it nailed. And then one of your users gets fished and suddenly Chris or the bad guy can literally WMI your environment inside the firewall boundaries. 
So it, there is an important distinction of, of where you block this is probably, um, I would say, more so at the host um, than probably the firewall level because that's, you know, users are, are kind of a bummer in regards to getting fished. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, 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 there's definitely a difference there, just like you mentioned. And it, uh, I think it just depends on how it's really architected from the administrator's perspective and getting it rolled out kind of enterprise-wide. But yeah, you, you, there's definitely trade-offs. All right. So tell us about the components of WMI that IR and defenders need to know about. So what is it that you use, you utilize? Uh, you mentioned uh, a reg key that you can change the size of. Uh, obviously, there's built-in utility you know, WMIC on all systems. There's you know the WMI database. So talk about the components that you guys use and and would utilize in the course of an attack. Sure. Um, I mean, I personally largely interact with WMI basically through PowerShell. Um, I know WIMIC is obviously a built-in command line utility that you can use. Uh, I think I personally rarely use it, uh, although there are tons, plenty of attackers that clearly do. Can, um, I, can, I, funny can enough, I stop you as a uh, clarification? So yeah. using PowerShell on, uh, now this is this is another important distinction people need to understand about uh, WMI or any other attacker. There is what you generate on the host, on the source system, versus what your target system so the target system is the system you're trying to hack the source system is the system you're trying to use when you say powershell are you using powershell on your system or are you then once you get wmi on the target system you're executing powershell there that, that's a great distinction i should have explained a little better so i'm kind of thinking from like a, a red team perspective uh, a tool that we the tools that we use all the time maybe uh like metasploit or cobalt strike and um those tools have the ability for me to load arbitrary scripts in them in PowerShell scripts. Um, so if I'm red teaming an organization, I may through one way or another gain kind of like an initial foothold. Uh, maybe someone ran a phishing link. Maybe somehow we're able to find a method of jumping internally from externally. Uh, so once I have that initial foothold on like my my first system inside the organization, uh, I can from that first system. So not my attacker system, but that initial compromise. Uh, start PowerShell or write a PowerShell script that allows me to interact with WMI. And so there's a couple different ways you can do that. You can do that through just like sim sessions. Uh, you can also use that through a, a older PowerShell commandlets where um, it's called like invoke WMI method or get WMI object. One of those the components of that is to, I can remotely, I can do that either on my local system that I initially attacked or I can use WMI on basically that patient zero system to interact with another box internally to that organization. And as long as I were to have administrative or local administrative credentials on the system that I am targeting, then I can use WMI against it. So like a common, uh, maybe not common immediately, but one attack path at some point that an attacker may try to find is hey, does the user account that I'm operating under the context of have local administrative rights on any other system within the domain? Right. And so a great tool to do that is like PowerView. Like you can really quickly kind of enumerate that sort of information. And once you have that, you say, okay, yeah, um, system two over here, my current account uh, has local admin rights on. And assuming WMI isn't blocked at the host and it's not in a different subnet or different network where there is an enterprise firewall, kind of like you mentioned, blocking it, I can just go ahead and start interacting with that system over WMI. Like I said, you can use like WMIC, uh, like using the process create command to spawn whatever you want on that. Uh, but generally, I usually go through uh, PowerShell on, from that system one that I'm on 
and uh, can use that to interact with the remote system. All right. That means you are triggering that noise on the target or patient zero, the one you're attacking. Uh, that means there are there is activity that you're generating on that system. So uh, potentially catchable PowerShell, right? So I, I just did a talk at uh, ShowMeCon and, and B-Side San Antonio on uh, PowerShell logging to try to get people. Uh, it's it's posted at uh, Iron Geek's website if you want to watch the the cast about turning on you you know absolutely number one priority for organizations is upgrading to PowerShell five and getting oh, yeah. the PowerShell logging turned on because what Chris just described you can catch that patient zero or the target machine's PowerShell execution. Um, one of the things um, that we saw in the course of testing was the source is really noisy. I mean, holy moly, you, you lit up every every alert that I had. Uh, when we were executing uh, the tools on the source system. But again, the source system may be the bad guy's remote system that's not in your network. Therefore, you don't get any of the activity that he's logging. Another important distinction here is you do need to have a credential to use these kinds of attacks. So yep. you know, one of the first things I did, right, change user in order to then use a user that had a you know credentials on, on Betcher's box. Uh, I wasn't able to get to his. Something's turned off on his, but he was able to get to mine, and we executed it. Uh, we had to configure the labs, and they're isolated. Um, but you have to have a credential, so that is obviously task number one for these kinds of attacks. Is you've got to get a credential from a user, which I'm not going to say is difficult because phishing is generally always successful. So, um, but that is something you, do, you people do need to know about these uh, types of attacks is credentials are required. Administrative credentials are required. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, without that, I mean, unless you were to somehow go in and like purposefully like misconfigure the system, you generally do, like, like you mentioned, like need administrative credentials on whatever system you're targeting for use with WMI. One other thing that I think it's worth calling out is, um, now, granted, it's, I think it's only really usable on Windows 10, uh, like I think it's version 1709 uh, or later, and like server 2016 is Windows' uh, attack surface reduction rule set. Uh, they they actually recently came out with a really cool ASR rule where you can uh, use, if you have the rule enabled, you can completely block process creations that are start from PSExec or WMI. So that specific rule itself and this is completely available and free assuming obviously you have uh that version of windows 10 or server 2016 so it doesn't help windows 7 but if you enable that you're killing part of the capability right there that's built into wimi implant uh some of it that's built into wimi ops really just a lot of different attacker tools that leverage wmi because um it, it's stopping the out-of-the-box process creation with like that win32 process class uh so it's a really useful thing that would be good to look at if that's something that you want to stop at your at some point. And not by default, Microsoft makes you turn this on and enable it for your clients. Yeah, you need to actually enable that uh, on on the systems that you're looking to run that on. I just threw that in the show notes uh, so that everyone can see that as well. So that's Gee, a, what else do they not enable? <laughs> I was to say that's a, yeah, but it's an important point. He mentioned Windows 10 in 2016, and we're going to mention that a little later. That uh, there, there's a recommendation. Hey, upgrade to PowerShell 5 so you can catch this PowerShell uh, exploitation. Turn on the logging, which is not on by default. And B, use Windows 10 so you can take advantage, or Server 2016 so you can take advantage of this protection that's available to you that you will have to enable. And so it, it seems that Microsoft is providing us the tools 
um, just not by default. Uh, and so you do have to put some effort in there as a as a defender. And so you say upgrade the PowerShell five, but doesn't that give the hackers more tools? You know, it's an upgraded PowerShell that just gives them more abilities to to attack, right? Well, so I mean, logging oh, is what I'm after. It's not so much the the, the ability for them to attack. I, I think uh, it's it's what I can get out of it from a detection perspective more so than them using it as a tool. Um, there's so many ways in and out of Windows. Um, they're going to go more stealthy anyway. But I, I want to be able to have that logging capability because, again, it's free, and all I need is a sim or a tool that can look at that. Uh, and, and I'm way ahead, like you know, the 14% that don't do a very good job. I'm guessing they're not doing this kind of logging. I don't know what they evaluated as part of being in the 14%, but I'm going to assume the 14% does good logging. And I recommend that to everybody to turn on local logging, even if you're not collecting it, so that when we go hunting, we might be able to find something. So I don't, I don't care that they get more functionality. I care about the defenders getting more functionality. I think that's the ultimate goal because we didn't even have it in the past. And we're going to reference a great example a little, little later. Yeah, and personally, I couldn't agree more that, I mean, a lot of attacker tools today are written specifically to be compatible with PowerShell version 2. The main reason for that being is because that's the I mean, default version that's installed on Windows 7. You can essentially use that tool on every single um, version of Windows and PowerShell from that point on, unless like maybe version two or something has been specifically uninstalled. So there, there definitely are like new commandlets, new different capabilities that are available in uh, kind of a later version of PowerShell. But it, it almost gives me more worry, just exactly like you mentioned that uh, that with V5 enabled and running, that there will be more logging that's going on in that system. Like I, I think. Absolutely is key. If you have the capability to be able to store and log that data that you definitely should, because you're right, even if it's not getting sent off somewhere uh, immediately for like real time analysis to see if there's anything malicious going on, it gives you the ability to kind of go back and try to start recreating uh, an attack if there was an attack on any of the systems. Yeah. So Chris, what should security teams look for when it comes to WMI attacks? That's a great question. Um, I think it just really depends upon like what is what they think is happening, like and what sort of data that you have. The parent-child process relationship is always interesting if you have the capability to see like, hey, this is really weird that PowerShell keeps getting spawned by the WMI service. Uh, I, that's not really completely standard unless there's some, for whatever reason, I don't know, job on a system that did that. Uh, it's being able to track kind of that information can be useful to see maybe something is going on. It may not be indicative of evil, but it could be indicative of maybe I should kind of just look into this a little bit more and see what's going on. But but if you had the PowerShell logging enabled, I can look at the script blocks of the legitimate PowerShell scripts that are executing and say, sure. not these, and now suddenly my noise goes away. And then when Chris jumps on the box and does the bad foo, then suddenly now that, um, you know, having legitimate PowerShell's been filtered out of my SIM, let's say, log management, and now you execute something and suddenly it lights the alarms off. Yeah, yeah, that, that I mean, absolutely is a, a usable case. I'm trying to think of anything else. I mean, it, it's really like, I mean, you can kind of use it to try it. I mean, just look for a lot of the same things that we do. Because um, again, it is an administrative kind of service. Right. Um, if, if you're looking specifically for like Wimmy implant, like like I said, it is kind of registry backed um, where if you can kind of try to detect 
modifications to properties, or you can check for kind of registry key values. So another potential option is um, you can use WMI if you wanted to, to check for registry run keys uh, that's created on uh, whatever system you're trying to look for. And it's a really kind of quick, easy way to interact with what data is actually there and try to make a determination if um, it is legitimate or not. So if you can do that, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. You're, so you're querying keys, for example, let's say process command line has been enabled. So therefore there's a key that you set to enable process command line logging. You can look for that key to see if it's set or all the PowerShell yep. module loads and, and, and script block logging and all the stuff there. So you can, you can kind of do what dark operators Metasploit script does and say, I'm going to see what's set before I go making a whole bunch of noise. Exactly. Um, I actually have uh, kind of an aggressor script, which is a script for used uh, with Cobalt Strike, where if enabled, basically one of the first things it does is it interacts with the local system, looks at registry values to see, hey, is PowerShell transcription enabled and, and running on the system? Now, that granted, that query in and of itself would also then uh, be logged for basically looking for all those PowerShell logs, but it just kind of is that initial reconnaissance that I'm using to see, okay, if I am going to attack via PowerShell, then I know this level of logging is enabled and running on the system. Yep. That's an important point for people to realize you can read the settings that we've tell everybody to set so that you know what kind of noise to make in the attack, which is warning, Will Robinson. And then audit those keys uh, with file uh, and registry auditing. Uh, in this case, the registry keys, audit those. And then if they change them, you would then get a log entry a 4657 in this case that would tell you hey uh, your module logging was just disabled on this box so um, there are ways to to keep that foo from happening well we can't keep it from happening but at least you can detect that it's happening and respond accordingly so let's get back to the components of wmi so you use obviously powershell i guess as a component of wmi Every, anything on the box would be a component of wmi in that aspect yeah yeah um, but there is a database and there is the local wmic command um, and there's also registry components that you use. Well, WMIC is anything on the box. So let's just say there's anything on the box you can execute once you WMI to the box. But there is components in the registry that you utilize, change, and or manipulate, um, I'm assuming. And also there's the WMI database where persistence generally occurs. Yeah, um, I generally try to have as minimal impact with, with those areas as possible. Um, specifically with Women Implant, um, the way that it works is it kind of uses WMI I think for everything is, is how I try to describe it is um, it uses WMI as like the means to trigger an action on a system. So whether that be pulling process owners of a running system, uh, gathering map drives, it also uses WMI for the C2 channel. It is purely operating over WMI when I'm interacting with the system. So I'm not establishing a PowerShell, like a remote PowerShell connection back and forth. And then finally, it also uses WMI for storage. It does that specifically by interacting with the Win32 OS recovery configuration class, which I know that's a mouthful, and uh, specifically the property debug file path property um, in, in WMI. And what that specific property does is it's actually used to, uh, when let, let's say you, like you know uh, your system blue screens and, and it crashes, uh, just... Like that never happens, right? But um, uh, when that happens, that the specific path of the debug file path is where uh, your that memory dump that's created by Windows. Where does that go? And so that property actually is the exact path on where that dump would go. Well, when I was actually trying to look and identify 
um, if I want to use WMI for like data storage, uh, I needed to find something that uh, actually had like enough space to store data. And um, I, I missed with like a lot of different uh, WMI properties are available, but some of them had like really limited storage capabilities. Like I maybe only store like 50 characters in specific property. Uh, a lot of properties weren't even writable. Um, some weren't, uh, didn't take string data types that I could store data in it. Uh, but I found that specific uh, property when I wrote a script to basically enumerate all properties installed and um, writable on a system that are type string. And it's that dump file path. And the weird thing about that is I've tested, I think I've score, uh, stored up to at least 700 megabytes of data in that specific property. Now that, that's a ton and there should be no real reason to, to have that. But the reason why it's probably able to do that is because that property is registry backed. And um, uh, it is under, uh, I, I kind of have it in the show notes that people can go to, uh, but it's under the debug file path uh, registry key that you can kind of look at, or excuse me, the dump file registry key and under kind of the control crash control set. And uh, that's where that data is stored. So at least indicative of like WIMI implant being used in an environment, if you're looking for uh, maybe any modifications to that path, because that path is going to be I mean, rarely modified, if ever, right? Uh, I mean, I, I certainly personally have never modified where uh, Windows dumps RAM and everything else that it does when it crashes. Uh, so any sort of modifications to that specific value is probably indicative of something really weird going on in that system. You mean and changing so, the path where the debugs will occur or are you storing your stuff in the path of the debugs? Uh, the path where uh, the dump will occur. So like right now, the value of, of the dump file value is system root slash memory dump, memory.dmp. And so that if that value of system root slash memory.dmp is changed to numbers with uh, commas in between them, or really just like to almost anything else, but uh, numbers with commas in between them, I mean, that's exactly how WIMI implant is going to be using that as like a temporary placeholder to store data to pull it from both local and remote sources. So uh, like any sort of modification to that data is, uh, I would say, indicative of something strange going on, if not a good indicator that you should investigate for its potential use there. All right, so now we have a registry key that should be audited, and any changes to that key altering its path should be a dead giveaway, something fishy is going on. Yeah, I think that that is, like I said, I've never really seen, I don't think ever, that's not to say it doesn't exist, but like I've, I've never just seen that change from its default value. And uh, even if it's changed, uh, that's probably going to be done right when you're like deploying that box or something, right? That's not just something that's arbitrarily changed really on the fly. And so, I mean, re regardless of when it was set, like it, from once that box is deployed, I would really think that any time that that is changed from that point really going forward, it's probably something weird and it may be indicative of this activity. That's an interesting artifact. That is an interesting artifact. <laughs> we we have a uh, feature in LogMD called interesting artifacts for these kinds of dead giveaways to ponage, right? Yeah, that'd be great to to look for in that case. All right. One thing we did was to evaluate WMI. We said, well, let's run these tools and figure out what happens on the target system when these tools are run. So we said, okay, what about just a process less? Okay, what about if I start a process? What if I kill the process? Things like that. Uh, what if I upload a file? 
So uh, that's probably where you should start your uh, investigation into what kind of defense capabilities do you have? If you have an EDR solution, can you run WMIC and uh, do these things? And is your EDR solution going to give you an indication that this attack took place? Yeah, that's something definitely you should uh, test. One of the purposes of, of naming the tools that we talked about is so that defenders can test their stuff. I think uh, I remember hearing, uh, reading article way back, I've referred to it in various talks, that only about 50% security folks in general are only about 50% satisfied with their tools. Well, it's probably because they didn't test them very well. And so as these attacks or methods, right, the uh, techniques, tactics, and procedures that, you know, get invented and or found and, and utilized, uh, suddenly these tools start falling off and then there's this reinvention of a new tool, next-gen AV, EDR. But you do yeah. need to test your stuff and get these kinds of, of things, uh, even to know that they don't do them, so you can make a feature request of your tool that you think should do this kind of thing or have a discussion with your vendor, say, I really think you should do this kind of thing uh, and, and see where they stand so you can make a better decision to possibly look at a different tool or replace that tool. So testing is definitely something blue teamers and defenders and incident responders should do. And it's definitely something uh, Brian and I uh, engaged on with our EDR evaluation. We looked at 16 products, hand tested 12 of them, uh, broke pretty much all of them from our perspective <laughs> in these kinds of tests, which didn't mean they all were bad. It was just shocking that certain things got by. And so therefore we had no, okay, here's a limitation here. Uh, is this a limitation we can live with? Is this a problem for us? Um, and so you should understand that about your tool sets and, and make sure you test these kinds of attacks because they are they are heavily utilized. I mean, WMI is, is a big big focus area for uh, for the criminal elements, for sure. Yeah, I think that's a great approach to, I mean, I mean basically performing that sort of a, kind of a gaps analysis, if you will, on like your different capabilities for, for detection uh, inside your environment. It's not, it doesn't really exist as much in women implant, but like other tools that I've, I've written or, or helped um, or I've seen like friends develop do have the capability. Like um, there's a tool out there that I wrote for kind of like, it's kind of like a DLP sort of bypass, uh, not necessarily bypass, but it allows you to get data outside of an environment over a variety of different protocols um, that can be used. Uh, and the nice thing about that tool though, is obviously it's useful from an attacker's perspective. But I think it's just as validly useful from a defender's perspective. Like you want to know, hey, am I able to get data out over um, HTTP or HTTPS? No, that's caught. Great. Okay. What about like ICMP or DNS? Like where is that caught? What's logged? Uh, because you can then instantly like understand the posture of your organization. You can see like what data you do see, where your blind spots are, and try to do exactly what you uh, just mentioned. Maybe either look at different products or maybe ask like the different vendors that you're interacting with uh, to kind of build in that capability. And I think that's it's absolutely the right approach from from a defensive perspective to to know exactly where you are, what you know, and what you don't know. Yeah, I think C two is a very difficult thing uh, problem yeah. to solve, and really expensive network tools. NetFlow is probably your best option. I, I would guess. That is definitely a measurement in that 14% of companies being good enough at security that I'll bet you a lot of those yeah. don't even have this NetFlow capability, or maybe that was a, a major criteria in that number. I don't know, but I would say most organizations, if if they're not logging, definitely are not doing NetFlow to catch that kind of activity. Oh, yeah. For yeah, sure. I would agree that's more indicative of a mature security program, um, uh, generally at least. But I mean, I guess you got you got to start somewhere. 
Um, and th there's just a variety, but like the whole concept though, it's just like trying to understand what you can see, what you can't, whether that being from a host perspective, from a, a network perspective and, and kind of going forward. We added in regards to our show notes and our topic area to, to pick on Chris and have him, uh, uh, which he's already mentioned is, you know, one of the things you want to look at for detection, right? Investigations is, are there any, you know, WMIC command line entries, you know, did, did a person like Chris or the attacker use WMIC? Um, again, he already mentioned PowerShell would be his choice. And, and literally you have access to anything on the system. Who am I? You know, it doesn't matter what, what's being executed, but uh, you definitely want to look at the process command line of what's going on. Uh, let's assume you got a trigger of some weird oddity. We'll talk about a little bit of those a little later. But the CMOM, one of the artifacts that came out of uh, Devin Kerr when I had a conversation with him a couple years back uh, that I monitor pretty heavily is the CMOM registry key, HKEY Local Machine Software, Microsoft WBEM CMOM. And it seems that that registry key has some configuration settings for WMI that when an attack or persistence occurs, there's some odd changes to that key. So it's something people should definitely look at and look for and or baseline and compare against. Uh, LogMD has a registry baseline capability where then we can do a compare. And so uh, there was mention about um, a, a timestamp kind of entry that occurs when there's some WMI persistence. Uh, but these are kinds of things uh, as defenders that say, all right, what can I look at that generally, and the CMOM key does change. There are some values that change a lot. So you have to rule out those values, but the other values don't change much at all. And so uh, it's something you can, you can definitely um, look for in the course of these attacks. Obviously, once you're on box, they can execute anything as we discovered which you know again a something that's already on the box calling it living off the land or as chris mentioned he's going to dump it in the debug directory location and then call his payload from there um, again not a very obvious place to put things um, so another key to monitor we'll have that in the show notes for sure and then of course the wmi database now you say you stay away from it but a lot of attackers definitely use the wmi database yeah absolutely i mean because you, you can like you said to create malicious persistence uh, via WMI. There's a lot of different things that you can kind of do with it. Uh, I, I'm very nervous about changing uh, static, or not necessarily static, but just changing things that are potentially easily auditable. Well, easily. There's not a lot of people probably doing this. One of the reasons we're having this podcast, yeah. right? So we're talking about C Windows System 32 WBM repository, index BTR, and objects.data, right? These are the databases that WMI utilizes that we would scan with an auto runs tool or LogMD's new minus WMI option for persistence that says, hey, is there anything in there? Okay, this is normal. Let's whitelist this out. And then when you know I put that bad bad version of calc in there, uh, it should stick out to me when I scan my environment or hunt my environment, right? So it is a place yep. to put stuff. And, and that covers kind of the areas that WMI can attack you, right? So we've got this debug directory, we've got registry keys, and we've got this database. And then of course, anything else you can execute, which means, um, you know, you've got living off the land to your to your endless desire. Yeah. I always say. Yeah, I mean, there's just so much. Yeah. This is, it's just incredibly endless, right? Windows is fundamentally broken. It gives you every tool and, and the capability, like in PowerShell, to bypass the execution control. Not a security feature, but again... You know, uh, you know, bypass things that normally should be loaded, like a profile that might be collecting, you know, PowerShell two command line logging. So thank you, Microsoft, yeah. for that one. You also have, uh, you you could just use WMI for persistence, right? Yeah. And stick in an event to consumer binding and and uh, an event consumer 
And then whatever food that is placed on the system, whenever there's a reboot occurs, that that event consumer can initiate via a login or some other kind of, well, let's just say the uh, processor goes above 90% and then this, then this persistence mechanism kicks in, right? Yep. Yeah. Uh, there, we've done stuff. I think like Mac Raper uh, under PowerSploit uh, actually had one of the first few ones that was kind of publicly available. I apologize if there's another one that maybe existed beforehand, but like his, I think it works. It's basically like after system uptime has been between like three and five minutes, uh, something like that. It's just a random value between there, then it'll trigger and it'll trigger running whatever payload you want it to run. So whether that be, I, I mean, virtually anything, like you, you can just interact with the command line essentially or tell it to interact with the command line at that point and run whatever script or tool or program or command that you wanted to do. So yeah, there's just so many different like triggers that you can kind of use to enable WMI to act as your persistence method. Yeah. Granted, yeah. that'll obviously require like administrative rights on the system. You're already there if you're using WMI, right? <laughs> yeah, largely. And uh, sky's the limit as to what kind of persistence mechanism you want to build. Yeah, it's, right? it's limited to your creativity. You can put PowerShell in there. It's a database, which means you have the same storage capability that the registry has. You know, it's a database, so therefore you can throw an entire PowerShell script inside there, and you can encode it, so it's not very easily readable. Matt gave me a a MOF file that basically loads calc as a test. You know, huh. just MOF comp space, you know, malicious dot MOF, and then boom, it installs a entry into the database, and and bam, you know, you've got calc loading. But, yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty easy, and unfortunately, <laughs> the MOF files can be. Anywhere on the disk, not just like in one location. That would be wise Microsoft. You know, MOFs can only be loaded from here so we can track yeah. and, mo and monitor the MOFs, but no. Um, so bummer for that one. Yeah. All right. So blocking these types of attacks. One of the things in the course of trying to get these tools to work in a lab. Now, let's describe the lab. The lab is two workstations sharing an internet connection. Um, they weren't necessarily on the same work group. And so they are not domain attached machines, right? This is a typical lab. Uh, there was no domain controller involved in this lab. It's used to detonate malware and, and do testing and whatnot. In that scenario, running a non-domain environment, we could not get these tools to run. And so we had to, uh, A, figure out why. <laughs> and uh, yay for Microsoft for not, to, not enabling that out of the box. And so yeah. there was some tweaking, which we have in the show notes of what those tweaks are. And the reason you want to know about those tweaks is because you want to monitor for those tweaks to be undone in the event that you turn them off, which is we're recommending you do. Again, trying to keep the lateral movement within a segment, right, in, in between the two enterprise or data center firewalls, and, and lock this stuff down. Uh, you want to monitor and or change these values. But uh, one of the dead giveaways was whether we could uh, do a net use to admin dollar. It, you know, that gives you an idea of the level of the box being opened and then setting, um, running a, a WMIC command, um, WMIC slash node, your IP address, you know, OS get caption. So you can see that it's a Windows 10 or Windows 7, right? A real simple command. Sure. If you can just execute that and you've got admin dollar access, generally the box is open enough to then do these attacks, right? So that was something we, we came across. And there's a couple of keys in the show notes. I won't go through the long path, but... Uh, filter administrator token and account, a local account token filter policy, right? Setting these opened up the box to the point where we could uh, play with these tools. Um, but also, you know, the, the question was going back and forth with Phil, make sure RPC was running. That generally was running. It was these other settings that generally had the box locked down. 
whether DCOM had been disabled, but again, that's pretty much always running in Windows. Um, and that would be the other two settings that, that a company might mess with. And so that's kind of the, the suite that's going to be in the show notes for you guys to look at. But that was that was what we found is just trying to get it working in a lab was kind of a pain in the ass. And we didn't have to make any changes in the domain, which is, you know, wah, 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 when we tried it yeah. between our boxes. That's actually been my experience as well. Um, and building, up to, in order to really, when I wrote Women Implant and kind of really started interacting with these different tools, the easiest way for me to do that was to quick stand up like a two or three workstation domain and just test it out on that. Cause that's generally what I'm going to be interact, like what I'm going to be facing anyways, from, from an offensive perspective. Uh, it, it's harder on a local system uh, to do it than on a domain joint system. Yeah. So everybody unplug your domains, go back to standalone systems and uh, you're going to be more secure from these attacks. But again, yeah. not very realistic, but super hardened. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. I still talk about it. I was on a, a test one time where, Probably one of the harder tests I've ever gone on was where this organization did not employ Active Directory at all. It was, there was no like domain join systems. It was just everyone had their own workstations and I can imagine it was a management nightmare. Uh, but it, it made it super hard because it, we, we couldn't, it, it, you couldn't leverage a lot of the same things that you could uh, in, in a domain environment. Now, do you know if uh, this local account token filter policy and filter administrator token are those wmi uh enabled in a uh, um a domain environment and can you shut those off without screwing up it i, I need to like really I, I honestly i need to recheck my lab um like what differences between like your guys notes uh versus like the domain now you can easily through wmi modify the registry so um if if i had local admin rights on a system uh, I could easily use that to change anything I want. So like an example, Windows 10, if uh, I want to change the key so that it actually is capturing, so that it will actually capture credentials in memory to like enable uh, Mimikatz, then then I can do that. Granted, that box will have to reboot. Uh, po point being is that I can modify, delete keys, do whatever I want, assuming I have that administrative privileges. But um, I, I need to like actually go back and like, do an in-depth kind of analysis on my lab versus uh, the configuration you guys had to see what got working because it, it was a little while ago that I, I did this specifically for uh, kind of a local workstation lab versus a domain join lab. And I remember it, it was kind of a, a pain to, to get working. So I, I ran into, I mean, the same exact issues that you guys did. Yeah. So if you're testing this, it'll be painful in the lab. So yeah, just do it on your domain. There you go. Just do it live. <laughs> Production, it's all good. Now the yeah. the use of WMIs, I would say almost uh, I can't. I don't think I'm, I'm I'm really guessing, but my experience has been WMI is not used on the workstations. It is definitely used in these uh, shared blade server pizza box environments, big time, right? Because um, that's how you're managing all the storage and NICs and, and you know, arrays and all the other things that you do. But in the workstation environment, um, not so much. Uh, I, I don't, I have seen it trigger somewhat on my new Windows 10 laptops and whatnot, but for the most part, uh, it's local things occurring that Microsoft's doing. But I, I would say you'd probably be, uh, you know, definitely an 80-20 rule, you obviously test, that you'd be okay chopping this, lopping this off for workstations for sure. I think there'd be very little I was broken. about to say, like, are, are you talking about for administrative use or uh, uh, offensive? But um, Administrative use, which would kill offensive use. Yeah, like, 
I, I guess it really just depends with your environment. Obviously, I mean, test first before mass deploying. Yeah, I mean, that, that's an option. I mean, it, it depends. Like, are, are any of you, exactly like you said, are any administrative tools actually using that to monitor the health of a system to see what stuff is going on on the system? Yeah. Um, maybe you can't, like I said, uh, disable that completely, but an option is, is there a trusted VLAN or something like that where you can put an administrative system and only that uh, system has the ability to interact with other systems over WMI uh, ideally, I, I, I guess it really just depends. Um, I, like, I, I don't, I personally don't use it for administrative purposes. Uh, so it's, it's really, that's such like a custom kind of question that, that it's a good point. Like if you're not using it, it may be worth testing to see what uh, remotely, yeah. right? Because you can, yeah, you remote, can run it on the yeah. box. No problem. If you used SSCM, big fix or whatever. Yeah. Um, no problem running it on the box. It's it's we're talking about the remote access capability here and blocking. Yeah. That, you know. Cool. So let's talk about our, our lab and, and kind of some of the testing we did so we can share that with the listeners and some of the artifacts we found. Number one, yeah, Chris, you might want to you might want to jot these down. Right. So you can uh, absolutely uh, know how your tool is is to be detected. Right. Uh, yeah. At least from what from our perspective. Yeah. No, no I, I think that's great because I mean. I see stuff more from an attacker's perspective and I know what I think it may be potential indicator of, or something that could be used for detection, but you guys are clearly more the experts uh, than I, I'd absolutely love to hear and how try to help promote, like do anything like that. That'll help detect this malicious being used maliciously. Well, so, we, yeah, we, definitely can, notes. we can simplify this a little bit. One, the windows logging cheat sheets, all of them, <laughs> you got the windows logging <laughs> cheat sheet, get that enabled to the levels that it says you can use LogMD to check that, to see that you're enabled. If you pass and it's collecting without the, uh, bypassing the, we have, we have a policy that fails on purpose. It's by design where if you're not configured, if you just run LogMD minus one, boom, Here's what's here's what you need to set, right? So pass that test. There is an option because some houses will not enable the Windows firewall, whatever. Um, you can you can avoid that check, but uh, that's a good start. Then you know it's set. The other is PowerShell logging, right? Get that enabled because you're going to use your PowerShell yeah. foo on the box. You want to see what noise you're triggering. Uh, registering file auditing is is interesting here because we talked about keys that you're manipulating and uh, potentially locations that files are dropping. So there is the ability to turn on file and registry auditing. Uh, to capture that sort of stuff, right? And and that's a little bit more probably the 20% than the 80%. But get the logging turned on. So we focused solely at what we could see from a log perspective and what kind of oddities uh, we saw. The, the most interesting thing was, man, if you're on Windows 7, you are so screwed. <laughs> because... <laughs> Uh, when you WMI to a box, uh, you're authenticating to the box. And so we were focusing at, again, and this is something everybody should look for across their environment. And, and we saw when the attackers hit us and, and laterally moved. When Bob, the you know Bob being the bad guy, uh, logged into box patient zero, or let's say the hacker popped patient zero, from patient zero, Bob went to 50, 100 PCs and or servers. Uh, that's really unusual, A, because, you know, unless Bob is the only desktop admin and Bob can't work that fast, uh, hackers yeah. tend to be able to spread their foo in minutes or an hour, and Bob would not do that, right? Bob, if he had that much to do, would be using SSCM or something else. So the quantity of logins is definitely a, a gimme here if you do that kind of behavior with WMI or anything else. So that's something to keep in mind is is the logins. The 
one thing we saw in Windows 7 is that uh, Windows 7 doesn't have logon details, right? There are some fields that don't exist, impersonation level being one of them. In Windows 10, there has been added fields that when we looked at the attacks from just a 4624 authentication, there was a unique artifact that I have yet been able to find as normal that occurs when WMI implant was run or even WMILM on a Windows 10 box or against a Windows 10 box versus a Windows 7 box. And that is there was the impersonation level, impersonation, there's a you know field name, but both impersonation and identification were called as a part of the logon huh. um, within that same attack, right? Within that one minute or seconds period. So uh, it would be very uncommon because I checked the environment uh, for this condition where how many, how many you know, stats count by user or account name, stats count by account name, and then look at this, uh, count how many of these uh, impersonation levels there are inside of the, the field name for Windows 10, and you'll get you know all the levels. But I did not find the combination of impersonation and identification occurring except in this WMI implant attack. So that was a really interesting artifact that I came across. Again, LogMD caught it because we have a user activity report, and it's real obvious to us when we just do this kind of testing because we flush the logs and then we do the attack. And and so I splunked that, and sure enough, I could not find that naturally occurring. So I think that was a really cool thing we stumbled across. And so we're looking for more testing and, and validation of that. But I think that is something to look for because you'll go to one box, you'll pop that box, and, and you may not use that account on all the other boxes. Um, but that is definitely something I theoretically, I'm pretty sure I can detect is just that auth pattern that occurs with WMI remotely. Yeah, if that anomaly, yeah, absolutely sounds like a great kind of area to initially like look as you see that. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea for something to look for. Obviously, we saw network connections, and you know, one yep. network connection from one workstation to the other generally shouldn't occur by users. It should be done by admin accounts. Uh, but let's assume you've got an admin account. Then how many of these machines? Right, we're back to the counting. How many times? you know, Bob, admin Bob logs into stuff. That stuff yep. should definitely be looked at and looked for, right? The, the lateral movement of multiple systems, multiple shares being connected to multiple auths across the board. Um, and so that's the potential uh, item as well. Yeah, that, that's something that when we, depending upon the kind of like the, the command that you're running, that it will do. For example, if you're, let's say you want to re remotely run a PowerShell script and get kind of like the output, it's obviously going to connect once uh, kind of try to deploy that script and get it running. But then Women Implant is going to actually continuously pull that system. So it'll basically re-auth and re-pull data from that registry key I was referencing to see if the script actually completed. And so that like that's probably not super normal where it's it's specifically performing that authentication, looking at the value of a specific registry key every five seconds right. until it's overwritten with the data that it pulls it. So yeah, that sounds like another great indicator right so again these will be 4657 events if you're watching these keys so turn it on in your base build uh you know obviously you can gpo it as well and say hey everybody it's an hk local machine setting therefore you can deploy it in gpo very easily as opposed to hk current user settings which are by user which means the hive has to exist in order to set the setting a little more difficult to do but that was uh definitely a couple things another interesting uh item we saw was uh when you connect WMI to a system, service host is launching WMI PRVSE pretty consistently. 
Um, mm -hmm. And so service hosts launching WMI PRVSE or even WMI um, AP SRV, AP SRV would be unusual because uh, again, that doesn't naturally happen. Then the next thing, if you were to execute binary, uh, we look at, and another feature of LogMD in version 2.1 is a process tree. We've, we've now are giving our, our users a process tree, which means we can see the parent-child relationship of the executions. And one sure. of the things that really kind of made us go, whoa, is when you use WMI to remotely execute calc, for the example, it isn't a tree. It is a single line item. So the concern here is a analyst is going to miss this unique way of launching a binary because it's so flat in regards to the parent-child relationship. But the thing that sticks out is what launches that is service host calling the WMI utilities in the WM directory. So sure. you want to definitely trigger on that and figure out, you know, again, through a tree and or the association, right? You mentioned the parent-child before, um, but that was something also we thought was very low noise. Um, I've not seen it occur naturally in my testing thus far. Again, not extensive enough to, to be 100% certain. But normally when you do something, you get zero hits. It's like, ah, oh, I'm onto something. And yep. so far this has been a zero hit item is service host to WMI. And then the tree would then say WMI launched calc, right? And so now you have two entries. And so in LogMD, uh, the new version of LogMD, we have process tree when you do a, a minus one, whatnot. In Windows 10, you are given the name of the parent. In Windows 7, you are not. Here's yet another reason to upgrade to Windows 10 is you get uh, more information in the logs for process execution. A, the parent, something that came from the sysmon, right? You always use sysmon because you got the parent of the process. In Windows 10, you now get that as a part of the log entry of a 4688. And the, the login additional fields is huge for Windows 10. Um, and, and the protections we mentioned earlier uh, so there's a lot of reasons to upgrade to Windows 10 to catch these kinds of attacks that we definitely saw uh, as a part of this, right? And then if you start kicking off all the obvious things, I'm going to install a service, I'm going to kill a command. Uh, kill a command sure. uh, showed a 4689, you know, process terminated. Um, and so, uh, matter of fact, I was just doing a Slack chat about somebody about uh, using Sysmon. I'm like, be careful. Uh, you know, WMI implant can kill Sysmon, and the only thing you see is a 4689 termination. There's no log entry. There's there's nothing. <laughs> it's dead. It's gone. You know, game over. Uh, Sysmon's disabled. We're moving forward. But the fact that there's a kill so easily done was, again, a flat line. It's a single line item. And, and I can see analysts missing these things. And so that's why I think WMI is scary. And so we really have to kind of look at the things that are, are more noisier. So you do have network connections. Uh, we definitely saw, you know, Betcher and I connecting back and forth to one another. I, I think that's going to become more important in quantity in probably a real attack versus a pen tester, which will hit one machine theoretically. Yeah. Uh, maybe differently now after listening to this talk. Um, the type of authentication, if you're Windows 10 2016, will be hugely valuable. The process execution of what you're doing. Uh, Casey Smith talked about this new uh, way of, of changing the command line. Um, but again, before you execute some of this foo that generally gets talked about, you've made enough noise in the box to the point you are executing this cool secret foo that uh, it's not so secret. 
you know, it, it, yeah. it gets obfuscated after you kick out the food, but you've made enough noise in a box that something weird has occurred. So you do have to look at the context of the process executions to see this. The link to service hosted WMI should be monitored because then what are additional things you saw? Did you see any of these funny auths? Do you have any uh, workstation to workstation network connections going on here? Uh, uh, things like that. And then, of course, scan the WMI database. Again, LogMD has that with a minus WMI as well as built into the auto runs to see if anything was added to the WMI database. Yep. And if you do have file and audit auditing and, and registry auditing enabled, those keys that we mentioned, if they've been changed in your case using the debug path, you know, hey, <laughs> these these combination of things are, are dead giveaway. But, yep. but it was much harder in Windows 7. Windows 7 was quieter from the aspect of getting to the box and starting. But what you execute on the box is the same. If you if you start a task, you know, WL, WMI, LM did the same thing. I can do a task and do a service. You're generating the same noise as any piece of malware would at that point. I mean, I've created a yep. task. Hey, tasks don't get created very often unless Google's doing an update to itself. Services definitely don't get added very often. So a 7045 event, by the way, one of the only things that logs by default in Windows. Um, it's really good as, as the installation of a new service with a 7045. But also going back and forth with Devin, you can within the WMI database not add anything, but then go and change an existing item that's in the WMI database or add, let's say, my PowerShell foo to the end of an existing script that might be used. So I go scan the WMI database, everything looks totally normal. Yeah. But my foo's being launched by a script that's already there. So there's some homework to be done to go look and or hash compare things that are in the WMI database. Um, and so if you do have scripts and things that can be appended, be sure to know what those hashes are. And so you can do a compare against them. Uh, but that wasn't real noise that was made. But these are the, some of the things we saw in testing that were kind of scary. B, another reason to upgrade to Windows 10. And, but yet, uh, surprisingly, and, and we've only kind of touched the surface of this testing. I was really trying very hard to say, all right, here's what a net use only looks like in the logs. Here's just a WMI query and then really stare at it and say, what's different here, right? And Windows yeah. 7, you know, Betcher and I looked at each other and went, oh, this just sucks. Um, <laughs> there just wasn't anything in the login events that were real obvious other than Bob logged into the box, which in some environments, if your desktop administrator is occasionally doing remote support and everything, we have net used a box to pull, you know, um, malware payloads and whatnot. Isn't in itself unusual. It's the context of all the other things. Uh, one, all you guys that are doing this testing, please, you know, hack yourself by doing the blue team, turning on all this logging and see what those of us that are collecting logs and log management might see and kind of look at what a normal box is. Say, okay, this is WMI implant, but what if I'm, what if I'm just doing like a net use to the box? What does that look like? All right, now I'm going to WMI authenticate to the box. Uh-oh, that made a lot of noise because of this weird combination of impersonation identification. But if it's Windows 7, eh, I don't got to worry about it. Right. So if you do that, then you'll be able to better uh, give us details about your tools and how it affects WMI. Absolutely. So that's uh, that's our long winded uh, explanation, or at least my long winded explanation. What other takeaways did you have from from this Betcher as he? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> the, the fact that you can kill services, create tasks, right, and kill or start different processes was really cool, I thought. Now, since um, since DeviceGuard is a service, can you kill it with WMI and then go on about your business? I mean, that's that's the one question I have for for Chris. Yeah, so that, I mean, that's really loaded kind of when the 
the system is booting. It's funny, Matt Graver and myself were both just running into kind of the similar problem because we, um, he originally created kind of, uh, put out a blog post about creating an incredibly restrictive device guard um, uh, policy where basically you block, you. so device guard is, um, to, to cover it real quickly, kind of almost application white listing like on steroids where it's identity, uh, the way it makes trust decisions are through digital signatures. Um, if there's a file that is not digitally signed, you can use catalog files uh, to say whether you trust something or not. Uh, there's a couple of other means to, to not dive completely into it. Uh, but then it also enforces PowerShell constraint language mode. But it, it's running at boot, and you can also uh, use virtualization-based security uh, to help protect your system even further. So you may you can't necessarily just like turn off device guard, especially with um, VBS sort of stuff. Like you, you, it will protect you from just uh, basically pulling like a, the configuration policy, what they call the code integrity policy uh, to, to remove those protections. Like that, that stuff will be, can be locked down. Uh, I think it's via a UEFI lock essentially uh, to prevent that sort of attack from happening. So you, long story short is no, I can't just use WMI to kind of turn off device guard um, because of other protections that can and should be in place. Uh, one of those also being is, um, so you create a code integrity policy, which contains all your rules, which is based off of digital signatures. Well, you can also digitally sign your code integrity policy. And assuming you're protecting your code signing certificate and everything properly, an attacker, I ideally should not be able to get that to legitimately sign a new updated code integrity policy, which contains malicious rules that are deployed kind of domain-wide. Ideally, that should never be the case, obviously, assuming we live in a perfect world <laughs> and have perfect security everywhere. Uh, but yes, yeah, so long story short, you shouldn't be able to just do, do that uh, to disable device guard, assuming the proper protections are also put in place. Now, how many people have device guard fully deployed? I have uh, in the... I think so. I talked about it like two years ago. Matt and Casey Smith were also talking about it two years ago. I have yet to run into a single organization that has a single workstation with device guard. So yeah, so that's this is where we have the tools, but we're not quite using them. Yeah, and, and locking down the environment to uh, a bastion host, so to speak, is something that just people just aren't willing to do. It seems. Yeah, and it's it's hard. Like, look, so I get it. Like any sort of real application of whitelisting solution is hard it's a time investment that you uh like kind of defenders need to to put in place at first because you have to figure out what applications do you trust what don't you trust building out proper rule sets and like casey and i talk about this all the time where it's like okay what's the easiest way to get some quick wins and well it's not necessarily hey i've got this uh rule set that i think is good i'm going to deploy it domain wide like so that's probably going to be like the last thing you want to do but if you can target like fixed functionality systems it's a lot easier to start getting wins there, right? So let's say you have like an ATM or just a web server or just a database server, uh, stuff where like low user interaction, fixed functionality, you shouldn't be installing a lot of software on that. You can build a policy specific to those and deploy it and see how it works. And um, it, it's such an instant win when you can see that like, malware1.exe was blocked due to like the policy that you have in place that it's uh you know the funny thing is that i think casey likes to do it too is at a talk where you ask a question like how many people have like application 
whitelisting deploy and it's really a, usually a small number um no oh, it's like two yeah. or three i've been in many cases talks and it's like a, a, you know just literally a handful of people raise yeah. their hands it's it's worse and, than and log it's, management or it's like else. okay how many of you thought it was a lot of work and the same people put their hand up uh but then you ask a question like how many of you regret putting application whitelisting in place and i i'm I would be interested to find a single person that uh, actually regrets having deployed application whitelisting due to the capabilities and protections that it offers. Right. And keep in mind, if you're going to do application whitelisting or device guard or this kind of lockdown, you, know, you might seriously need to understand that your help desk is now your focal point of how you get things installed. Mm -hmm. So you, you will have to have a process that deals with that. You'll have to be staffed to deal with that. So that you can see um, um, and deal with these requests and or quickly make those changes and get those apps installed so business is not slowed down or shut Absolutely. down. Absolutely. Like the, the one problem, if you can call it a problem, with uh, at least a vice guard can, can be like operating at scale. Like if you have such a large environment where there are many different configurations, like deploying stuff at scale and making changes to any of your policies that you're creating at scale can be hard. Um, it's something that uh, Mac Graber, I, I keep talking about him, uh, but he, he's one of the only few people that I know that have really looked into device guard. So he shares my pain. Uh, he has the same kind of thoughts, like deploying it is hard at scale, but really I think it's probably the same with almost any application whitelisting solution, but like that the protections that come from it are just, uh, I, I think like I, I'm a huge advocate as an attacker because it makes my life so much harder um as well so if you have good application whitelisting in place good logging just like you were mentioned powershell v5 logging um it, it it makes it so much harder to either attack or to protect against defenders following your attack because of all the telemetry that they have and everything that they are able to to kind of gather and use to recreate exactly what you did and, and properly kick you out or just use max and name them with windows workstation there you go and that'll really there you throw go. you a loop that does it well, <laughs> So, you can hack Mac, so that's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Again, we're talking about the 80-20 rule, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Windows is like 99.9. .9 yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, uh, immediately upon doing these testings, I came home to my uh, Humio environment, and I tried the same queries that, that I was playing with otherwise. So, you know, again, how the listeners can test this stuff is, A, you need to get your system up and running. Systems, you'll need, obviously, two uh, as Chris talked about, and we talked about, if they're standalone systems, not on domain, you're going to have to follow the, the hacks to get this stuff running. If you have a domain lab, then great. You, you can use that, and it, it'll be a little more open. Um, you get the cheat sheets, turn all the logging on, and go download. And Chris, if you haven't heard of this, one of our sponsors is Humio. They offer a free solution, cloud-based solution, where... Uh, you can easily, it's uh, two terabytes day total, so you can get five workstations on this thing easily, uh, logging with a WinLogBeat client and FileBeat client, and uh, basically get uh, your stuff sent to this Humio instance of yours, and it'll it'll keep it for seven days. And uh, do this kind of testing with Humio. And so I, I came home and built this looking for the same thing in my personal environment. You know, does this, you know, combination of 4624s, uh, successful logins occur anywhere in the entire time I've been using it where impersonation and uh, identification have occurred and the answer was no. So um, you can do this testing at home. Uh, Humio is a log management solution you can use to test this. If you haven't heard about it, then I suggest you 
Go get cheat sheets on all your lab stuff. Get Humio so you can see what it is we're talking about. But how would I do this myself free? Uh, I definitely would use Humio for that. And I'd recommend, Chris, you use Humio as well to do this testing and to see what WMI implant and other tools you develop and tweaks uh, eight, make yourself a better pen tester so you can see the noise you're about to make. But then you need the tools that we talked about, right? WMI Implant and WMILM. Uh, WMI Implant has a lot more options, um, but a shout out to Phil for helping us out with the testing. So those two tools are, are a great place to start. Uh, you have a log management option to you to see, again, what might be uploaded because I, I know Chris will say, I'll just clear the logs if you're not doing log management and you won't catch a thing. And so see what they both look like and, and you can test this stuff yourself. That's what I have. Any closing thoughts, Betcher? Well, a uh, couple. And Chris, you mentioned uh, single purpose or dual purpose systems like web servers. So you mean I can't install Chrome on a database server, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's where we're at, you know? So it, it's important to, you say lock these things down, but you're really not locking them down. You're, you're saying, okay, these things should only do these purposes, right? Like a database. Okay. You're running a certain database. You're administrating, uh, say a, a Linux or whatever on there. Don't go installing other tools yeah. on the production database server without notifying people and getting approvals, things like that. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen browsers, uh, on web servers that, that administrators will go and, well, they need to, to, research something on the internet while they're updating the system. So they, they open up internet explorer and start surfing the net and, and uh, with a search engine clicking on various sites while they're on the stinking production web server. Right. Yeah. 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 The last thing I want to do is log into a, a, a quote, single use web server and uh, see Slack open up or something like that. <laughs> Bing service. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then quickly, you mentioned that you can OneDrive. block process create from WMI or PS Exec. I, yep. I think if that doesn't hurt your environment, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that shouldn't, um, unless um, your IT department uses WMI to execute PS Exec. I mean, um, not sure, but that would be freaking awesome if you can just get that one thing done, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that will single-handedly stop that attack vector. Um, now, granted, there are other means, though, from an attacker's perspective. You're making life harder where I can't uh, just spawn, like, when uh, create a process, when 32 process. I can still create a service. And so maybe if I can write a service binary to a system, I can interact with WMI to spawn a service on that system. But it still comes down to, like, you're, you're upping the bar, right? You're not... Yeah, but that, that just caused you to trigger noise that I can easily exactly. detect, right? As exactly. opposed to the standard one-liner WMI launch to binary, which is hard to detect. Harder to detect, not hard, but harder to detect. Whereas a service being added is definitely noisy, right? So that's the goal. Exactly. Can I make it noisier so the alarms go off before you're successful or in the course of you being successful? Yes, completely agree. What was that again? The uh, Which part? method to block the process create uh that is um windows is uh i believe is the attack surface reduction rules um i'll throw a link into the the show notes for you guys and there's a, a ton of different rules that are here that you can kind of use um to to block different things uh but one of them specifically is 
to block process creations that originate from PS exec and WMIC. Which is a good thing. Yep. Okay. And again, check out the show notes for all the, the cool stuff we brought up in this talk. And uh, that ends the, uh, the main segment of the show, our topic. Chris, if uh, anyone wanted to get a hold of you to talk about more, talk more about the work you've done, the tools you've created and the events you may attend in the future, how, how would they do that? Oh yeah, uh, probably one of the easiest ways. This is I, I'm on Twitter a bunch. Um, my my handle is just Chris Trunser. Um, we I blog a lot about different things at, at our company site, which is the 40northsecurity.com, and uh, we're going to be going and speaking at a couple different conferences. Uh, funny enough, actually talking about WMI is uh, I think this just been public the other day where I'm actually giving an offensive WMI workshop at Wild West Hackenfest. So I'll be up there in addition to giving a talk. And um, usually at conferences or just online uh, through the company or, or Twitter, feel free to reach out to me at any point. Where's the uh, conference at? Uh, that is in Deadwood, South Dakota. Uh, that is uh, with Wild West Hack. Okay. And as, as usual, you can reach out to us. Our main website is log-md.com. You can get to Hacker Hurricane at um, malwarearchaeology.com. Check out the cheat sheets there and uh, download previous episodes of the podcast. You can find it wherever uh, fine podcasts are aggregated. And that's the show for today. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Chris. Thanks a lot, guys, for having me on. I appreciate it.